You're listening to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, the show for people who leverage the latest in technology to solve agronomic problems. If you're interested in on-farm application of precision ag technology, you've come to the right place. Get ready as we unpack the insights and experiences of the agronomic minds leading our industry forward. Today on the SWAT Agronomy Podcast. I mean, we'll, you know, often show the map to the farmer before I start sampling and, and they'll go, oh, yeah, that's amazing. That's the field, right? But it's hard to know exactly what the opportunity is until we actually sample then and, and put some numbers to the map. I'm joined by Wes Anderson, Vice President of Agronomy at Croptimistic Technology. If this is the first time you've listened to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, welcome. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm a communications consultant, an ag tech geek, and the host of this show. I partner with the SWAT Maps team on this podcast, and we hope you'll join us as we explore where the latest in agronomy meets the latest in technology. Wes Anderson was originally hired by CropPro Consulting about three years ago as the first employee of the company in Alberta, and has since grown the business to servicing around 70,000 acres in the province. As the company shifted strategy to license their technology to other agronomy service providers, his role changed and he became the VP of agronomy for Croptimistic. In this capacity, Wes and his team support the agronomists and partners around the world who work with SWAT Maps and the SWAT ecosystem of products. Our conversation today covers his extensive agronomy background, the opportunity he saw with SWAT Maps, what's happening with SWAT Water, and some of his thoughts on the role of site-specific agronomy in the carbon and sustainability metrics conversation. First, though, I asked Wes to share a little bit about what led him to agronomy in the first place. I grew up on a farm near Yorkton, Saskatchewan, so east central Saskatchewan, and a mixed farm, and I was involved with 4-H Beef Club. And But I always like crops a little bit better because they stayed where you put them as opposed to cows not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I went through those phases as a kid where I thought about engineering and stuff. But yeah, I went into the College of Agriculture at University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon and uh, did my four-year degree there in crop science and finished in 2001 and promptly got a job as a full-time agronomist with independent retail in, in central Alberta. And uh, really for the past 20 years, I've worked as an agronomist in some capacity uh, in various parts of, of Western Canada and uh, actually spent a couple of years in Australia about five years ago. So five years ago, came back to Canada for various personal reasons. And I had a brief opportunity with working for Mosaic, so for a large fertilizer company and really expanded my network of, of some incredibly intelligent people and, and really getting into that fertility and soil space and some pretty in-depth knowledge. And then three years ago, met Corey Wilness and had a chat about what they were doing. I'd been following what he was doing with SWAT maps and, and some variable rate phosphate and stuff at that point and was interested and curious and it sort of made sense to me. And yeah, one thing led to another and then I had a job offer and and here we are. Yeah. Well, tell me about this uh, venture over to Australia for a couple of years. What were kind of the big differences you noticed? You know, that took some some guts to just kind of uproot and go and figure out a whole new area. What was that like? 
Yeah, I uh, I think a lot of my friends and family thought I was crazy because, you know, like you say, I was well into my career. I had landed at 30 years old, landed what I considered at that point in time to almost be my dream job. I was ended up being agronomy manager with Richardson uh, International, which is a large, very large company in Western Canada here. And they have a bit in the US too. But um, yeah, and just had this really unique opportunity come up in a very diverse irrigated area in the Miramidji Irrigation Area in South Central New South Wales. So big, big area for rice and cotton production, lots of wheat, and then just a whole host of horticulture crops. So I mean, I had clients that rotated wheat with onions or carrots or pumpkins and cotton and rice and you name it. And it, it's year-round agronomy. Like, there isn't really a very hard seasonal, you know, routine to the year like it is in this part of the world. It's it's just steady year-round, which is kind of cool. Um, but it gave me the opportunity to really get into irrigation. I dealt a little bit with pivots into irrigation in Western Canada here, but just with wheat and canola and stuff, which seemed kind of boring compared to cotton and rice and those sort of things. So, so yeah, and then just, I mean, cotton and rice are just entirely different crops compared to what we can grow in Western Canada here too. So it was, it was just a huge educational opportunity for me at, at a point in my career where, yeah, I mean, I should have just sort of been comfortable and I feel like one should never get too comfortable and we don't get very many opportunities in agriculture to get very comfortable because we've always got mother nature changing things up for us right if you're not learning constantly you're not doing anything like you you should if you're if you're doing anything you should be learning that was just an opportunity for me to to really ramp up the learning which is something i like to do and then, so then when you came on board with CropPro or CropTomistic, you know, was swap maps already a thing or were you coming on to help with more of the crop consulting side of things? Yeah. Yeah. So swap maps were really officially, like I think if I remember right, Corey had just been awarded the patent in Canada. It was really just, you know, really starting to ramp up, certainly Western Canada wide and, and just actually just started to get partners in Eastern Canada and the U.S. as well in the Northern Plains. So so it was really just, you know, at the cusp of, of increasing a lot and, and starting to get a fair bit of attention and you know, recognized by some academics in Western Canada, three universities here, which is always cool. So, you know, I'd used various precision egg tools throughout my career, especially like in Australia, we used a lot of imagery for a lot of things, growth regulants and cotton using NDVI, top dressing nitrogen using some NDVI, that sort of thing. And, and that, that worked really well in those things. But like I always kind of thought back to Western Canadian landscape. And, and I mean, I grew up in East Central Saskatchewan and sort of a hummocky glacial tail soil and lots of variability. You got topography, you got various soil textures, even a little bit of salinity here and there. And like using imagery for that never quite made sense to me. But everything they were doing with SWAT or the little bit I knew about it at the time, I thought, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. And I admit I did, you know, even when I started, I didn't realize a whole lot, but when I started looking at the data and soil test results and, you know, on landscapes that I was familiar with, and especially when I started ground truthing new maps, that's when, I mean, it was just light bulb after light bulb. I mean, again, I, for me, that was just the learning curve was, was exceptional. Like, like I learned more 
about soils and fertility in probably the first four months than I had the previous 17 years of my career. Like it was just phenomenal. There were all these things that I'd learned in university or read in a textbook or even today. I mean, I've got three different soil fertility manuals, right? You flip through them and they mention like manganese toxicity and high organic matter peat soils or like all these things that you just, you rarely see because they're, they're so specific to a specific soil condition or something. And you go, ah, like you read it in school or like you're taking it in university and go, ah, that, that never happens. But now with us, like the way we do things, we kind of map all the extremes and see it all. And, uh, and sure enough, you start actually seeing these things. So. Hmm. And you just see them in a very specific part of the field. A lot of the time, yeah. I mean, a lot of the time, some of those really extreme things are delineated into, say, either a zone one where, like, often you get, like, zinc deficiency would be common. Say, in an eroded knoll, that would, we'd usually have those as zone ones. Uh, copper deficiency in northern Alberta is quite common. Pretty severe potassium deficiency, right? Like, all these kind of weird things that we don't see that often in Western Canada, admittedly. Was it last week or the week before? I mean, I saw mangan really severe manganese deficiency in a really peaty soil for the first time in my entire career. I'd, I'd seen lots of manganese toxicity uh, both here and in Australia, but never actually deficiency. So not firsthand. So it's always interesting. Now, if somebody's listening and they're not very familiar with SWAT maps, maybe could you talk about, you know, why things like that are you able to catch now with the way you approach things versus before? You know, you had a long career in agronomy before this that you may not have ever known that you were seeing before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes down to recognizing that you can manage these things, right? But I always say before you can manage it, you've got to first map it and then you've got to measure it. And, and until you map it and measure it, it's hard to manage it. So, but we have all these amazing tools, like really gets, what gets me excited every day to come to work is sort of seeing the opportunity to combine multiple technologies, right? To provide value. And sometimes that value is sort of, it's like a one plus one plus one equals five sort of thing, right? And, you know, we couldn't do any of this without the John Deere's and Case New Holland's of the world that have variable rate capable equipment and and then now we've got SWAT maps to map soils and and then you've got all these cool fertilizer technologies to to utilize in in very specific ways to maybe like reduce denitrification losses or leaching losses or whatever right and it's when you start combining all these things together that's what really excites me but yeah I mean previously I guess before variable rate capability was very common like I'd walk in a field and you'd typically just sort of walk to average areas of the field and that's that's often like sort of a normal soil type we'll call it whatever that is and kind of mid-slope positions and you know that's often not where a lot of the problems are right? <laughs> like that's where everything is kind of just good neither too wet nor too dry the soil textures usually aren't very extreme and you sort of like those extreme areas previously you know i'd look at them and go well yeah like sucks that it's really dry there and we pounded a bunch of nitrogen to it or oh it looks like there's a bit of copper deficiency but oh it's well it's only two acres out of 160 so what are you gonna do you know well now like based on what we do it's it's like you really pay attention to that because at the end of the day it's even if it's two acres if you can increase your wheat yield by 10 bushels an acre well that's 
like that can be a huge return investment, right? So. Absolutely. Right. Is that something, you know, at, at Croptimistic, you get a lot where people who don't know much about the technology just kind of looks at it as another EC map, another way to get EC maps. Yeah, we do battle that a little bit. I mean, there's the first battle of getting your brain around. This is a soil based map, not a yield based map as an industry, entire industry. We've been so trained to look at yield maps and, and even NDVI maps now. I mean, yield, yield mapping has been around for like over a decade, right? I mean, it's, it's really old, but so first of all, getting around that, okay, this is a soil map. This is different. Yield is dynamic and it changes year to year and your highest yielding parts of the field are going to change depending on rainfall, right? But then there's the next thing of, yeah, okay, well, yeah, I, I understand soil maps. I already do EC mapping, but like EC is, it's a bit tricky, right? It's like NDVI. Like you can have a high EC eroded knoll and a higher EC depression, but they're high EC for different reasons. So that's where it's important to start bringing in other layers of data and really understand what you're looking at by ground truthing. And you just kind of launched SWAT Water. Can you give us sort of the the basics of what is SWAT Water and why is it kind of a new product rather than just a part of SWAT Maps? Yeah, we, we dipped our toes in it this season for the first time with SWAT Water. And I admit it's it's been, again, another pretty good learning curve. And it's been quite a challenging year this year with drought over basically all of Western Canada and, and much of the Northern Great Plains in the U.S. So um, it was an interesting year to get involved with that. But one way I describe SWAT maps is the best way to think about it is you've always got this relative moisture gradient, right? So a SWAT zone one is always should be the driest part of your field, either due to texture or landscape position or often both. Zone 10 should be the wettest. So we've always had that, that relative, you know, metric, but what it doesn't tell you is the actual amount of water, right? So there's been various companies coming into the market with soil moisture probes and, and it's great. And, and they, they do a great job of telling you, you know, a single point data, wherever that probe is. But we recognize that there's opportunity to essentially map spatial soil water the same way that we're mapping spatial soil variability. And with a little more detailed soil texture data and organic matter and and a soil moisture probe. We essentially, our, our water specialist, Jonathan Freeman, developed a water model to model out uh, that spatial water across the landscape. Because water storage capacity and, and plant available water is determined by primarily soil texture, right? And then there's some influence from organic matter and salts too. But, you know, it can all be modeled relatively well. And yeah, what's fascinating this year is to see how you know, that model was suggesting crops are getting to wilting point quite early in the season, right? I mean, we're already talking like a month ago now, I think. And yeah, it was, you, you go out and kind of, I, I was curious, went out and kind of ground truthed a few maps for lack of a better word. And yeah, sure enough, I mean, it was at least in certain parts of the field, the crop was stressing severely, right? Uh, and yet in other parts of the field, there was actually just beautiful crop. I mean, I, I use the example one old field I walked, probably the yield variability is going to be anywhere from 50 to 150 bushels an acre in the same field. Right? So it's just, an, and, and this water map really made a lot of sense because really about 50% of that field, it was telling me, was it around uh, wilting point? And uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating thing. And I admit I've learned a lot about water. 
Yeah, I guess so. And this would be the year to to really not only learn about it, but appreciate it. I mean, because how little options people have in a year like this is yeah crazy. Yeah. In Northern Alberta, we went from one extreme to another in 2020 versus 2021 season. 2020, we had a lot of our clients had acres and acres and acres flooded out. I mean, to the point where there was canola fields actually just being written off by crop insurance mid-season. We had for context, I guess, for those that are familiar with swap maps in particular, I mean, most canola fields probably had zones six to 10 totally flooded out, like nothing at all to harvest in that so that usually makes up about half your field. SWAT zone one had the highest yields. So some of the most horrible, sandy, even gravelly zone ones we have that are typically very, you know, water limited and nutritionally challenged, they've yielded the best because they're the best drain part of the field. So there's this like yield is the function of, of or it's the product of the spatial and temporal variability and temporal variability, the biggest one being in-season rainfall. So now fast forward a year and suddenly zone ones are going to be the lowest yielding part of the field. I don't think there's any question about that. And then we've got some crop in some zone 10s, especially those PD zone 10s. Well, it's the first time I've ever actually seen a crop in them. <laughs> it's been flooded out for the past three seasons. So yeah, I think it's going to make me with the drought. It's, you know, it sucks. Nobody likes drought, but it, there's opportunities to now test for residual nitrates spatially right because i mean we've got quite good crop in some parts of the field that there won't be any leftover nitrogen i mean unfortunately there just won't be while we got other areas where the crops just burnt right up and that nitrogen will still be there and it's at a landscape position where it won't really be even susceptible to loss right because it's those upper landscape positions the knolls so yeah even by next spring it'll probably still be there but we got to test for it and with the swap maps, is it modeling out the actual kind of water, I guess, flow so that it might figure into variable rate nitrogen applications to kind of understand where the nitrogen might go, you know, mm -hmm. under certain water conditions? Is that part of it? Yeah, you bet. It is capable even of modeling like some, some water accumulation areas. So in the event of a very large rainfall, it could kind of predict the area that would be actually flooded to some degree. So, of course, the model's going to continue to get worked on and improved and, and honed in, right? I mean, we've already recognized a few little things to improve on it, but uh, it's like anything. It's just a learning process and it gets better year after year. So, so in 2020, the season was quite good. And at the Glacier Farm Media Discovery Farm by Saskatoon last year, that, that crop had an excellent start. And we had we had already had some swat water maps then last year in that site because it was an R&D site. And yeah, made a top dressing decision. But we went from anywhere from 0 to 10 gallons per acre of UAN, so liquid UAN, so 0 to 30 pounds an acre of added nitrogen to top it up based on what we had applied at seeding and, and that turned out to be a very, very good decision. And the relative variability of where we added more nitrogen versus not was definitely the right approach. As it turned out, I could have actually varied it even more. Uh, the University of Saskatchewan did a bit of plant biomass stuff and protein work out there at the end of the season that kind of told us how well we did. Yeah. And it, uh, it was interesting to see. You know, with SWAT water, do you see people planting different zones into different crops. You know, uh, you don't want to plant 
like a pulse crop probably where it's going to be super wet because some of them, you know, don't like that. But I mean, do you see that happening already, like within the same field or is that something you might see in the future? We are a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think that's ultimately where things are going to go with precision agriculture, more and more sophisticated prescriptions that really factor in true potential and an and opportunity in each part of the field. So yeah, I have some direct experience with one of our clients here did a, a, a maple pea oat intercrop, which is kind of one of the more common intercrops, I would say in Western Canada here. And they've got really wet PD depressions, very high organic matter, always lots of nitrogen. Peas just die no matter what, like even in a dry year, they don't do very well in those soils. And I was a little bit nervous because it was a pretty extreme prescription. Um, they did seed some oats over across the whole field, but at a very, very light rate in like zones one to eight. And then in zones nine and 10, those wet PD areas really cranked up the rote rate to basically full normal seeding rate for oats virtually no nitrogen applied at all. And I, I bet they had, you know, over a hundred bushel oats in, in that part of the field and beautiful crop that would normally just be flooded out completely or, or certainly just not grow any peas. That's for sure. So yeah, there's incredible opportunity. I, I even wonder about, and I spoke to a, a rancher last week at a field tour and he asked about uh, forages. And, you know, when you look at a forage hay field, right. Or, or even a native prairie native pasture right you you see all these different plant species by primarily landscape position but there's soil type differences too i mean if you get into saline salt affected soils you see certain species like wheat grasses that tolerate the salts right there's probably opportunity to even do that with forages and like rather than planting species that just ultimately won't survive in say the top of a hill or a depression or whatever like you can you can blend the species mix and and plant different things in different areas, right? That's pretty cool. And you had mentioned earlier about organic matter factoring into kind of water holding capacity, water movement. Are you seeing infield variability in organic matter, or is it pretty constant? It really depends what area you're in. That was one thing that was very fascinating to me and became very obvious right when I started and started looking through our you know, database. Um, in northern Alberta here, in central Alberta, we see tremendous variation in organic matter and depth of organic matter. It's not uncommon to have 4% organic matter that is, you know, six inches deep on the top of a knoll in zone one to... 12, 13, 15% organic matter and 18 inches deep in zone 10. They're the most extremes, of course. I mean, we've got, I think we have one field that's 80% organic matter. It came back from the lab and that was, <laughs> it was pure peat. Like you could bag it up and sell it as a garden amendment, right? And it was deeper than our soil pro would go. So yeah, I mean, there's the real extremes, but um, like that four to 12% is really, really common. Whereas you get into like Southern Saskatchewan or North, Northern North Dakota, you know, you see a lot of like two and a half to 5% ranges in organic matter. But then with that, there's always a slight topsoil depth difference too. So like, it's still pretty significant. There's still differences in mineralization potential because keep in mind those 5% organic matter soils are lower landscape positions. After every rain event, they always stay moist a little bit longer than the top of the hill. And that all affects microbial activity, right? And, and subsequent mineralization and supply of nutrients. So 
it's uh, even quite subtle looking differences end up like more than you would think, I would say. And how are you accounting for that in the model? Is that just through soil sampling? Yeah, the actual organic matter and the actual nitrate levels, for instance, that are often highly linked to the organic matter because of mineralization. Yeah, that's all really just measured through soil samples. So as good as a SWAT map can be as soon as we make it and ground truth it, I mean, we'll, you know, often show the map to the farmer before I start sampling and, and they'll go, oh, yeah, that's amazing. That's the field, right? But it's hard to know exactly what the opportunity is until we actually sample then and, and put some numbers to the map. And is that what the soil probes are there for too, is basically to kind of ground truth the map? Yeah, like I, I've always liked ground truthing in the soil testing truck so that you've got, I mean, our trucks are set up with two different probes. We've got a really high efficiency Wintex and a, and a bigger hydraulic probe that can go down to two feet. So you can get a whole two foot core to see really the, the whole profile are you getting sandy loams at depth or gravel even? How deep is that A horizon? Like that's all part of kind of the ground truthing process, right? It all goes into the map one way or another. So, Are you getting a lot of questions? It just seems like there's so much talk out there about sustainability metrics and how can we use all this data to get money for carbon, you know, that sort of thing. You know, is there any, any specific initiatives there we could talk about or, or questions oh, that, that you're getting a lot? Goodness. Yeah. You're opening up a can of worms, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go there if you don't want to. No, that, well, and you know, we should, because it's, it's an important discussion, but I'll try and be brief. First of all, carbon, you know, I think there's an awful lot of claims and things being made out there and you know oh we can measure carbon from space and we can model carbon and we can do this and we can do that at the end of the day like the variability that we see like the example i just gave right four percent organic matter that's six inches deep versus 12 percent organic matter that's 18 inches deep like how do you ever model that or measure it from a satellite right like you need some sort of framework soil-based framework to actually measure and quantify this stuff and not just in the surface soil either right i mean everybody's talking about like the top 30 centimeters or whatever or, or six inches but like there's carbon that goes well below that too so if you don't account for that you're you're missing out on a lot of, of potential changes so yeah that's probably all i'll say about carbon i think it's just there's a lot of learning to happen there in that space frankly it scares me a little bit but the other one we've had a lot or i've been personally involved quite a bit on is nitrous oxide emissions so our canadian government has come up with a target of reducing nitrous oxide emissions by 30 percent i forget by what date i'm not sure how they came up with that number frankly but so there's lots of good discussions happening around what we call 4r nutrient stewardship using the right rate at the right time in the right place and the right source uh, and that's great we live and breathe that every day with what we do but again it's like i think in their minds they're thinking well farmers can just decrease the amount of nitrogen by 30 percent and that'll subsequently reduce nitrous oxide emissions by 30%. Now, nitrous oxide is a product of denitrification. So this is where there's lots of soil nitrate sitting in the soil profile before the crop has used it. You get a big rain event and the soil gets saturated and the microbes start converting that nitrate to N2O, N2, like ultimately N2, just nitrogen gas that we breathe every day is, is the end end product. But 
nitrous oxide N2O is one of the products, right? And it's a potent greenhouse gas. It really is. It's like 300 times the, you know, effect of carbon dioxide. It lasts in the atmosphere for over a hundred years. Like it's, there's really nothing good about it. And if nothing else, it means you're losing nitrogen, right? As a farmer, you're losing N, <laughs> period, that you've paid for. So we want to avoid that. Swap maps is, allows a, again, a management framework to help manage that where like what, where we often see like in Northern Alberta, we get these really rich depressions with high organic matter, lots of mineralization. Those are the areas where there's lots of nitrogen sitting in the soil all the time, often too much, right? And, and to the point where we see, we get a lot of crop lodging, right? Wheat goes down and falls over and it stays green forever and won't mature. It's just, it's too much nitrate. We, we measure it all the time. Those are the areas that are susceptible or sort of hot spots to this nitrous oxide. So like we're kind of going here as a precision egg company going, well, like we can manage this with technology. We don't need to implement some, you know, government policy to restrict farmers from applying the right amount of fertilizer. We just need to put fertilizer in the right place and maybe even utilize products like super U or ESN or, you know, this again, this goes back to this multiple technologies all in one thing, right? We've got these fertilizer technologies that help us reduce those emissions too. Why can't we use them in conjunction with something like swap maps and VR equipment and manage it that way? Wouldn't that be better than just kind of putting the hammer down and saying, oh, sorry, you can't apply this much fertilizer anymore. Makes sense. Well, I, I don't know if this falls under your domain or not, but, you know, if a new partner comes to you and says, look, I, I'm interested in becoming a swap maps partner in, you know, Arizona, just to pick a random place, you know, what's that look like for them to get involved? We haven't really talked about this on the show at all. Like, you know, obviously if, if the area is available, then it seems to be a good fit for everybody. Is there an onboarding process? Kind of what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, actually we're just doing an automated onboarding process now to get partners in and, and make sure they get trained up in all the respective parts of the process. Cause, cause it is a multi-step process, right? We've got to collect the data first. The maps have to be made, which usually we're, we're looking after that. Um, but then they need to be trained on ground truthing all that data too. In a lot of cases, they're not quite familiar with, with that. And that's all done through our SWAT records platform, which kind of makes it quite a bit easier. The agronomy gets really specific, right? I mean, I, I, we've got SWAT Academy now, which is just this online training portal that is really robust. I mean, we've got training on every step of the process. I did a lot of agronomy videos. But, you know, agronomy gets so area specific, region specific, right? Like I'm not going to tell somebody what to apply to lettuce in Arizona, right? Like I don't know. <laughs> so it's just more a training about the, it's the thinking and the mindset um, and getting them, getting them through there. But yeah, so we'll onboard them if they need a swap box to do the mapping. We've got it set up now. They'll get shipped to swap box right away. Um, get them trained up in the mapping first. Because before anything, really, they got to collect the data and then they can get trained up on ground truthing and how to soil sample and, and then interpreting all that data that's in front of them once they get it all back. Well, big thank you to Wes Anderson for taking the time to share on the show. Make sure you're following him on Twitter. He's at Field Dirt. And of course, you can learn more about the work we discussed on today's episode at SwapMaps.com. 
We're just kind of getting started with this podcast still, so make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. I think you'll find us there on all of them, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And please share the episode with a friend. If you have any recommendations for guests or topics or questions, go ahead and tweet them to us by using the hashtag SWAT Agronomy.